Would you turn with me this evening to Mark chapter 14? And some of you are saying, the most, more astute of you, hold on, weren't we just in Mark 6? Didn't he say last week, next week we're going to look at the last part of Mark 6? I confess I did. I was not even thinking about what's coming next. Uh, we're going to jump over to Mark 14 for the Lenten season. I know it's not Lent quite yet, but I'm going to be off next week, and then we'll be into uh, Lent, and, and then we're, we're just going to look at the uh, last three chapters of Mark, which all deal with Lenten themes, and, and then, of course, Easter, and we're going to deal with those uh, through Easter. I just felt like it was more advantageous for us to, to uh, look at the end of, of Mark, and then we'll come back after that in the spring and summer and finish out the rest of Mark, and we'll get back to ch- the end of chapter 6. But Mark 14 brings us now into the week of Jesus' passion. And I just want to explore some of the themes that fit within in that. In the morning service, we're not going to be doing uh, anything in particular with Lent until we get to Easter because uh, we're going through Ecclesiastes. Uh, but in the evening, I wanted to spend some time with some of the stories of Lent. And so we begin in chapter 14 where we find out that Jesus has already been in Jerusalem a couple of days the triumphal entry has already happened a few chapters before this. We'll get to that on Palm Sunday and, and uh, look at that particular passage. Uh, Jesus is now a couple of days away from Passover, we're told. Actually, we're told that uh, the Passover and the Festival of, of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Jewish holidays, just uh, a quick look at the spring feasts. There were actually three feasts that all occurred at the same time, roughly the same time, in the spring. Now, there was uh, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the, the festival or Feast of first fruits, which is an agricultural feast. Now, the first two of those that are mentioned by Mark here in verse 1, a Passover kind of started the holiday, and that, ha- that started technically on Friday, even though we have Monday, Thursday services and things like that, because our Thursday evenings were actually their Friday, their, the beginning of their uh, day of Friday, because it always started at sundown. Uh, and so then they would celebrate the Passover, then, then after a day, at the, next, at the beginning of the next day, which, was, which would have been Saturday evening at, uh, at sunset, then they would start the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Both of those, you may recall, are focused on the Passover Passover celebration that they had as they remembered what God had done for them in bringing them out of Egypt. And the Unleavened Bread fits, of course, with that that part of the the Passover, the angel of death passing over, but as they were making their getaway, they had to to cook uh, bread that was unleavened. They didn't have time to make it raised because... They were on their way quickly. And so it ends up being an eight-day festival. And the reason I bring it up is because sometimes the gospel writers just call it Passover, and they mean the entire eight days. Sometimes they just call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they mean the entire eight days. Mark calls it both here at this point, but then he will go to, uh, he will kind of go back and forth between the two. Uh, the Feast of first fruits, uh, unlike these two, which were always the specific uh, the specific uh, dates, um, in this case it was the Friday and the Saturday, 
the Feast of First Fruits um, was always a particular day. It's kind of like Thanksgiving. It, it moves as far as the dates are concerned because it was always the Sunday after the Sabbath that, it, that occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So whenever that Sabbath occurred, then the next day, uh, that Sunday was always the Feast of First Fruits, and they celebrated uh, by bringing the first fruits of the barley harvest. Uh, in Jesus' day, in this uh, particular case, the three happened uh, bang, 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 three, three days in a row. First uh, Passover, and then the next day, unleavened bread, and then the day after that, first fruits. And God, I'm sure, did that intentionally because it, it uh, tells us a little bit about how Jesus is, has fulfilled uh, those particular feasts. And Mark, or, uh, Paul in Romans also talks about, or Corinthians also talks about uh, first fruits in terms of Jesus' resurrection, and that was the day he was raised. Okay. So I've got enough padding. I've used enough time. I can get started on my sermon. Now, I just wanted to give you that little background because I, I can't assume everybody knows all of that. Not everyone spends as much time with it as, as I have. Uh, so I just wanted to get those, those uh, names and dates and things out there. So now Jesus is two days from that. So it's a couple of days before he's entered into uh, Jerusalem and the triumphal entry. Went into Jerusalem, uh, overthrew the money changers' table, cleansed the temple and the like. And so he's already uh, causing a bit of ruckus in Jerusalem and already is being very sus suspicious for the chief priests and teachers of the law whom uh, Mark points out here at the beginning. The chief priests, of course, were the, those who ran the temple. And the, the, uh, the teachers of the law or the scribes were mostly people who worked in the temple. Uh, Pharisees are a different, sort of a different group. They show up at some places, but as far as the ones who really kind of put Jesus to death, it seems to have been mainly the people that were associated with the temple because Jesus threatened the temple economy and threatened them as well. Uh, so that's where we're at. So let's uh, pick up our reading. Um, all this different stuff is going on. It's, uh, he, Jesus, along the way, has also been telling his disciples, you know, I'm going to go to the I'm going to go, to go suffer on a cross. And, and it was not unusual for them to see Jewish martyrs hanging on a Roman cross. And uh, they didn't really want to hear about that. They really didn't want to prepare or think about that. But there was someone who did. And we're going to encounter her in this passage. So Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of the, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, 
What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Conclude a reading at that point. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you incorporated this as part of the Word of God for us today, help us to understand how it affects us today, what you are trying to teach us through it. We pray that you would, as you inspired this Word to be written down and remembered for us, that you would also inspire it to each of us to help us each know how we are to respond to this Word, to this event to this challenge from Jesus' life. We pray it in his name. Amen. So it's two days away from the Passover, which for the Jews was was sort of like the 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter all rolled into one. It was the holy day, the holiday. As, uh, As Charles Swindoll writes, it was a time of hearty celebration, the singing of great Jewish songs, the acting out of a drama dripping with emotion. It was a time in which signal flares were lighted around the city of Jerusalem. Trumpets blared and banners waved as the festivities continued. The festive spirit was contagious. People poured into Jerusalem from Galilee and Perea and the regions beyond. Like a vast family reunion, thousands upon thousands filled the streets for days as they relived their historic deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Ordinary business ceased as everyone in Jerusalem observed the holiday. But as we find out in this passage, not everyone was so festive. In the midst of it all, a, a conspiracy was being fine-tuned. Now, even from the beginning of the book of Mark, we've seen that the religious establishment, for some reason, wanted to kill Jesus. Perhaps because they revealed, he revealed their hypocrisy and failures. Maybe because he threatened the temple economy, certainly by going in and cleansing the temple a couple of days before. And these recent events have certainly fueled the fire. Now they knew it shouldn't happen during Passover time, but they were looking for a sly way to put him out of their misery. And by the time we get to verses 10 and 11, they have it as Judas Iscariot has come to them with a plan to betray Jesus. But while the plot plot was hatching in Jerusalem, Jesus had, after going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, returned back to Bethany, sort of his home away from home on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And there he was invited to a party. As parties go, it was a pretty good one. Simon the leper gave it, probably in honor of Jesus by whom he had been healed. John tells us, because John always gives us a a little more detail in some of these stories, John tells us that all the disciples were there, as was Lazarus with his sister Martha serving. But perhaps more importantly, it was simply free from the tensions of Jerusalem. No Pharisee party crashers, no chief priest or, or teachers of the law, party crashers. And imagine the conversation. Think about it. A healed leper and a raised Lazarus. What was that like? What, was, what were the stories going back and forth between them? 
And yet for all of that, someone else stole the show. A woman came in and did something shocking. Understand, a Jewish woman never ate with the men and certainly never let her hair down in public. Women like Martha served the meal and ate theirs in the kitchen. But Mary, now John, again, Mark doesn't give us the detail. John tells us it's Mary that does this. Mary unexpectedly approached Jesus with a priceless alabaster vase of probably imported Indian perfume. That's where that would have, nard would have come from. It was quite likely a family heirloom, maybe passed on through the generations. Snapped the neck of the sealed vase, poured a generous portion on Jesus' head, anointing him, and then the rest on his feet. And then we witness her humbly, worshipfully, wiping his feet with her hair, an intense, passionate expression of devotion, really kind of unparalleled in Scripture. Now, I love the way Philip Keller tells the story because he, he brings out something I, I had never thought of before, the lingering of, of the scent, the lingering of the perfume. It's in his book, Rabboni. Keller writes, The delicious fragrance ran down over his shining hair and thick beard. It enfolded his body with its delightful aroma. Even his tunic and flowing undergarment were drenched with its enduring pungency. Wherever he moved in the ensuing 48 hours, the perfume would go with him. Into the Passover, to the Garden of Gethsemane, into the high priest's home, into Herod's hall, into Pilate's praetorium, into the crude hands of those who cast lots for his clothing at the foot of the cross. The special rite of perfuming the head and body was a rare ritual reserved only for royalty. It was the most lofty honor that could be bestowed by a common person. Jesus recognized this, and so did those around him. It was a significant moment of momentous meaning. Now, in the intensity of her worship of Jesus, Mary hadn't really given thought to how the others would react. Again, it's John who tells us that it was Judas, the treasurer with calculator in hand, who made the first comment and the others chimed in. This is worth like 300 denarii, over 300 denarii, over $40,000 in today's currency. When the, with the Passover tradition of giving gifts to the poor, Judas wondered out loud how many meals and, and how much clothing it might have bought for the destitute. Many in the crowd offered a, a harsh rebuke, and the word is interesting in Greek. It, it's actually used of horses. It's basically saying they snorted their indignation like angry horses. Apparently, the disciples thought they knew Jesus' mind on the subject. But they found out differently as Jesus passionately defends Mary, calling this act a beautiful thing. Why was this waste of money beautiful? Well, first, it came from a loving motive, an act of worship. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that you can have all of the spiritual gifts, even the most the most glamorous of the spiritual gifts, 
And you can sacrifice everything you have. But if you don't have love, it means nothing. They're worthless. Love makes our gifts pleasing to God. Sort of like children's gifts are pleasing to their parents. Her gift was spontaneous or, according to John Calvin, prompted by the Holy Spirit. It was not practical or sensible, but it was abandoned worship. It put Jesus above all else, even the poor. Now, Jesus doesn't argue against helping the poor. In fact, he actually implies that we have an ongoing responsibility to the poor, not just giving gifts at Passover or for us maybe at Thanksgiving. But he still comes first. The ideal is that a wholehearted devotion to Christ would then overflow into pouring ourselves out for others. So hers came from the proper motive and the motive of love. It was also a complete worship. Jesus notes she did what she could. She did what she could. She wasn't rich, but she gave Jesus the most expensive thing in her house. A complete sacrifice is the only adequate expression for a life redeemed by God. Paul calls us to present ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual act of worship. She did what she could. Do we? And this was also insightful worship. She had some insight into what was going on and why she was doing this. While the disciples wanted to ignore Jesus' talk about death, Mary honored it. She knew that when the tragedy came, she wouldn't be able to do anything, so she did what she could now, anointed him for his burial, as well as throwing herself before him in worship. By the way, hair was said to be the Jewish woman's glory, so you could say in a sense that she's giving all her glory to Jesus. Do we give our glory to him? Then look at verse 9. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's what we're doing right now. But why should such an incident be remembered? What does Jesus want us to learn from this? I want to suggest two things. First, the need to break a vase occasionally. There are certain times when extravagance is appropriate, even called for. Too often we limit ourselves, perhaps especially in the worship of God, to being practical. Charles Swindoll writes, We used to laugh at the comment one of the American astronauts made years ago, although the laughter is hushed since the Challenger tragedy. The way the story goes, someone stuck his head inside a nose capsule before the team of astronauts had launched and asked, How does it feel? With a grin, one of them replied, It really makes you think twice when you realize everything in this whole project was constructed according to the lowest bid. Many conduct their entire lives according to the lowest bid, especially in church. Anything that's the least bit expensive will receive a critical response. But sometimes God says, break a vase. 
When God built the magnificent tabernacle in the wilderness, he broke a vase. When the temple in Jerusalem was constructed, one of the wonders of the ancient world, Solomon broke a vase. The new Jerusalem depicted in Revelation 21, the heavenly city in which we'll spend eternity, is wall-to-wall broken vases. I mean, streets of gold, things made out of jewels. Lloyd John Ogilvie writes, Mary did not allow reserve to keep her from a moment which she knew would never come again. And he comments, there's a time when people should be careful, but there's also a time when they ought not be cautious. There's something to be said for a careful saving of our resources in order to make possible a great moment of unrestrained thanksgiving. The Christian is not a tight-fisted, clenched-teeth, grim-faced person. Rather, he's one who loves and laughs and gives himself to Christ lavishly. In Mary, we are challenged by extravagant love. So perhaps that's one of the lessons Jesus wants us to learn. Sometimes we need to break a vase in worship of God to his glory. But there might be another lesson. And that is sometimes we need to be a broken vase. I get this from a writing by Ann Ortland, whose husband Ray is a pastor. And she gives us a little bit different angle on this scene that I think it's worthwhile to listen to. So just listen to, to her words. A while back, Ray preached on Mark 14, verse 3. Here came Mary with her alabaster vase of nard to the dinner where Jesus was. She broke the bottle and poured it on him. An alabaster vase, milky white, veined, smooth, precious, and pure nard inside, gone forever. According to John 12, 3, the whole house became filled with the fragrance. Some story. Christians file into church on a Sunday morning. One by one by one, they march in like separate alabaster vases, Contained, self-sufficient, individually complete, contents undisclosed, no perfume emitting at all. Their vases aren't bad-looking. In fact, some of them are the beautiful people. And they become vase-conscious, conscious of their own vase and of one another's. They're aware of clothes, of personalities, of position in the world, of exteriors. So before and after church, maybe during, they're apt to talk vase talk. Mary broke her vase. Broke it? How shocking! How controversial! Was everybody doing it? Was it a vase-breaking party? No, she just did it all by herself. What happened then? The obvious. All the contents were forever released. She could never hug her precious nard to herself again. Many bodies who file into the church no doubt do so because they have Jesus inside them. Jesus, precious, exciting, life-giving. But most of them keep him shut up, contained, enclosed all their lives. And the air is full of nothing. They come to church and sit, these long rows of cold, beautiful alabaster vases. Then the cold, beautiful alabaster vases get up and march out again silently or or maybe talking their cold alabaster talk to 
to repeat the ritual week after week, year after year, unless they just get too bored and quit. The need for Christians everywhere, no one is exempt, is to be broken. The vase has to be smashed. Christians have to let the life out. It will fill the room with sweetness. And the congregation will all be broken shards mingling together for the first time. Of course, it's awkward and scary to be broken. Of course, it's easier to keep up that cold alabaster front. It was costly for Mary, too. End quote. C.S. Lewis, in one of his letters, wrote about Mary's action. He said, the, the allegorical sense of her great action dawned on me the other day. The precious alabaster box which one must break over, over the holy feet is one's heart. Easier said than done. And the contents become perfume only when it's broken. While they're safe inside, they're more like sewage. Lewis says, all very alarming. And Charles Swindoll comments, for some of you, the broken vase is long overdue. I'm talking about an extravagant gift to the work of Christ, the kind Mary gave. And what was that? Herself. Herself. For some of you, he says, it would be the first time ever that you gave yourself to anyone. Christ invites you to give yourself to him completely and extravagantly. A living vase broken before others. Perhaps only then we will discover what extravagant love is all about. Are we worshiping with a broken vase? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, your challenges that come even in simple events and in the life of Jesus. We pray that we, like Mary, might be so in love with you that we might not worry about what others think, but with abandon, worship you. Give all we are, all we have to you out of service for you and for all you've done for us. So even as, as Mary kind of began that Passion Week by by anointing you for your burial. Help us as we move into this time when we think about your suffering and your death to be able to give ourselves to you too, to anoint you for burial in whatever way is fit for us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand what that way is, what our path is from this passage through your passion to Easter Sunday, how we might best celebrate that this year. Now as we go out into this week, we're thankful that, that we can go out, as, as Paul talks about, being the aroma of Christ to others, even as the scent of the perfume of Jesus went through the next days with him. Let the aroma of Christ go with us into this week as we've encouraged each other and and focused our attention on you and praised you. Now help that to, to infuse whatever we do in this coming week and, and to uh, be shown to everyone we come in contact with. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.